Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell and welcome to this bonus episode of Not Alone. I had the good fortune of chatting with Dr. Miriam Rose Ungenmare Bowman for a recent episode of the show. We thought we'd give you all the opportunity to hear more from Miriam Rose. We'll talk more about the Deary, the importance of connection to country for her community and mental health in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Dr. Miriam Rose is a teacher, she's a principal, respected elder in her community in Daly River in the Northern Territory. She is also the 2021 Senior Australian of the Year. Throughout this episode, we've included little excerpts from some of Dr. Miriam Rose's writings that I hope you enjoy. And now, over to our chat. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, no, that's all right. So could I just get you to, to start by, by telling me a little bit about Daly River? What is it like for people that have never been there before? It's two and a half hours drive from Darwin, southwest. And the population here is about 500. And there are about 10 different language groups living here in this community. And then we've also got a, uh, another language. Um, it's called a Creole. It's a bit of English and a bit of Aboriginal words chucked in it, you know, and uh, yeah, mm. or Aboriginal English. So we can get by, by communicating with each other. Yeah, I think we're doing all right. <laughs> I also hear you have some of the best barramundi fishing in the world. Sure have. The <laughs> river, Daly River, is famous for its uh, fishing. And we get a lot of people come and go during the dry season. And they have a lot of competitions on the river. And uh, everybody's elbow to elbow kind of thing. It's also famous for crocodiles and, uh, you know, when we Must were... keep people on their toes. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. When we were kids, <laughs> we used to swim anywhere in the river here and um, it was because our elders used to work as crocodile shooters or hunters. They used to get it for their skin, for a, a, mm. a farmer here on the daily, you know, but you can't do it now. Because as soon as you splash or in the boat, yeah. they will pop up their head and have, want to have a look. <laughs> wow. Um, one of the reasons um, I wanted to talk to you, and thank you so much for making the time to talk to me, it was um, to ask you about Dadiri. Am I actually, can I just say, what's the correct pronunciation of it? Because I've read a few different pronunciations on it. How, how is the word supposed to be said? Dadiri. Dadiri. Yeah, Dadiri. You know that song, do a diddy diddy dum diddy do? <laughs> Yeah, that like that? Yeah. <laughs> Got yeah. it. With Dadiri, would it be okay for you to explain what that word means? Dadiri is deep listening, silent, still awareness, and it's to bring people around to look into themselves uh, because, look, we're in the digital era now, modern Australia, you know, the world is going faster and faster. And um, we forget about who we are. And to bring them around, I ask them in like, full stop kind of thing, questions as in, who are you? What are you doing? Where do you come from? Where do you belong? And some people say, I shouldn't ask those questions. And I say, I have to ask them. If they want to know about Dadari, they have to be open in their spirits, their being, you know, 
And then people ask me to teach them Dadari, I can't. I just can't come and teach you Dadari. Hmm. You have to be open to be able and then at peace with yourself, you know, and understand what we're about. Yeah. When I experience Dadari, I am made whole again. I can sit on the riverbank or walk through the trees. Even if someone close to me has passed away, I can find my peace in this silent awareness. There is no need of words. A big part of Dadari is listening. The, the concept has been called Aboriginal Australia's gift to the world. Do you think it's something that could help non-Aboriginal Australians as well? I reckon if they take the time out to understand what it's all about, you have to be open to what our teachings are. You know what I mean? What stands in the way of people being open to the idea, do you think? Well, like what somebody said to me that, you know, when I've asked them that question, who are you, where are you going, where you come from, where do you belong, what are you doing, they say that's a personal, personal question that I shouldn't ask. And I say, I'm trying to prepare this person to be calm, cool and collective and open. And then that deep listening that I talk about in Dadadi is also to do with that you don't just listen on the outside, you listen on the inside. And that mm. kind of prepares a person. To be still brings peace. And it brings understanding. When we are really still in the bush, we concentrate. We are aware of the anthills and the turtles and the water lilies. How important is connection to nature, to connection to country? Belonging is a very important word that we use. And like I said, you know, we're in modern Australia now and people have been forced or dragged or, or taken or whatever, you know, to all over places and um, they marry other people. But we're made up of what nature's about. And if it wasn't for nature, I wouldn't be here sitting talking to you because it's to do with survival. And in between the two seasons that we have here, uh, there's many seasons for us when it comes to food and gathering, you know, bush tucker and hunting, camping, whatever. And uh, ceremonies, it's also healing for us, you know, when you're feeling down and out. That healing that you're talking about, how important is connection to your country for your healing? Does it make a difference that you're connected to your country? Yeah, it does because... Um, we're not just a spirit or a being just wandering around in this world. We've been rooted in um, the sense that we belong to a tribe. We've got our homelands. There's no such thing as Aboriginal people being homeless, you know. So we belong to a traditional homeland. We belong to a tribe or a language group. We've got animals and plants 
earth, the stars and moon that we belong into, the water, the rain, the lightning, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, like our dreamings that we belong to, they're like our brothers and sisters. And uh, we learn about who are our blood relations and we belong to them and they belong to us. So that belonging bit is a very special word and we try and instill in our kids that they belong and not just somebody that's just drifting through their life journey, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My people are used to the struggle and the long waiting. We still wait for the white people to understand us better. We ourselves have to spend many years learning about the white man's ways. Some of the learning was forced, but in many cases, people tried hard over a long time to learn the new ways. You started the Miriam Rose Foundation when several young people in your community took their own lives in a relatively short period of time. If I was to ask you to kind of unpack for people what, what the purpose of the foundation is, what, what are you aiming to, to change with the foundation? We've got four pillars, education, culture, art and opportunity. Opportunity as in trying to find work for young ones around here, which is very hard to find, but we do manage with a lot of the service providers that are living and working here amongst us in the community. There's people that are running um, job opportunities as in um, working for the doll. They do four hours of that and then if they're interested in something else, they can go off and be farmed out to other service providers in the community and things like that. And then opportunities also not just work, but opportunities in finding places where our kids can go to um, high schools, wherever, in Darwin or interstate, you know, for further education and things like that. Art is... What's your name again? Mark. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I'll answer to, I'll answer to hey you. It's all good. <laughs> your people are good at um, recording things in the sense that they write about things, you know, um, things that they like, things they don't like, all that sort of thing, whichever way, you know, either writing it on computer and photographs and all that sort of thing. And that was always a, a, a thing with your people. For us, it's the art, painting, dancing, miming, all those stories. For kids to understand and own those stories. It's more creative. Or if you're teaching a kid how to read, you know, in a, in a classroom, when they finish reading a story, they, they paint that picture and then they tell you what that story is through their art. I do that in relation for the children or anybody. It's more creative so that they own that story rather than us talking to them all, all the time. Sometimes it gets a bit boring, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. 
and meaningful. Our Aboriginal culture has taught us to be still and to wait. We do not try to hurry things up. We let them follow their natural course like the seasons. We watch the moon in each of its phases. We wait for the rain to fill our rivers and water the thirsty earth. I think a lot of people listening don't have an appreciation for different ways of processing mental health um, for Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. And I, and I think what your work with Duddery and um, your foundation is, is really important because I'd like people to understand that there are different ways of working through mental health issues. And your work is really crucial in sort of helping people understand the difference. Does that make sense? I think so, but I didn't reckon that I was that important. I decide, I've decided you're that important. No. Just me, no one else. <laughs> but I think it's important. I think it's important for people to understand that there are different ways of dealing with mental health issues. And and one of the biggest things that's come out of this is that there are a lot of Aboriginal Australians that don't get necessarily great outcomes from traditional Western approaches to mental health. And some of the work that you're doing is actually finding a, a way that is better is better informed by their cultural experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What is it you would like people to know? Um, they've never had been exposed to that sort of being supported or they're still trying to understand the Western way of doing things. And um, there's a lot of things that we do that we're still having issues with, you know, in, in trying to understand your ways. Sure, I keep saying, and for us, and then we talk to our kids, young people or whoever, and especially the ones that go away to boarding school or if they get educated, um, they've got to learn to walk in two worlds. And then for them to be able to do that, they'd have a better understanding of what the Western society is all about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, Look, people come and go, the professions, as in mental health, it's not the same as if I'm walking with a young pe- young person here in the community or other uh, elders are, you know, and as soon as they have uh, suicidal thoughts, I go and say and sit with them and, you know, bring them food and let them know that I'm there for them if they want to sit with somebody or I get other elders to come with me. And uh, we've lost seven people in 07 up to about 010, those years. My nephew was the last one that went. It, it didn't hit me until he, he took his life, my sister's kid. He was 22 years old. And uh, I said, this has to stop. And then all lot people from the health department come down, Beyond Blue, mental health, drug and alcohol, you name them, and they come and sit and talk with us. And and I gathered all the people and the families that have lost loved ones. And then we listened to them and they talked to us and they said, we want to help you and uh, sort this thing out. And I said, no, you talk to us and give us what we have to look for in our young people 
is like cyberbullying, drug and alcohol, um, relationships and all that sort of thing can play a part in uh, upsetting someone young. And uh, I said, this is our problem, but it's good that you are here with us to walk with us, but we want to sort this out because this is our problem. So we, we jump on it really fast. And then there's enough young people around to update us elders in updated as in if there is somebody that's thinking or talking or carrying on about wanting to, you know, do the, um, do, do in with their lives kind of thing or take their lives. So we, we latch on to them straight away. My people are not threatened by silence. They are completely at home in it. They have lived for thousands of years with nature's quietness. Can I ask you a little bit about grief? The The approach to grieving in your culture is that it, it takes time. Could you I- explain to me the importance of, of taking time and not rushing grief? We own our grief. You and someone passes, a loved one, you know, you organise, yeah, sure, you mourn the death of your loved one and then you organise a funeral service and then you have a wake. And I know you still continue to mourn, you know, if it's somebody that's very close to you. For us, we have, well, I suppose it is like a wake, but it doesn't happen straight away after the funeral, Okay. There's other yeah. ceremonies that take place. Um, we've got to purify the house where the deceased have lived. and But we're at the very beginning when someone passes away and he was in a, in a house with his family, that family moves out and then leaves the house for a couple of weeks and goes and lives with other families in the community for that time until the funerals. Uh, had taken place, then they've got to go and purify the house and reconciliation takes place through smoke and when they smoke the house out and everyone walks through the house in the smoke and then there's mourning again, people wailing and then there's crobbery to make it so that, you know, where it's a, a tiny bit of the celebration of that person that's passed life and then the families can go back and move into the house again. So it take time. And until the family, immediate family, are happy to have that last ceremony. And then if you were married to somebody and you lost your wife, um, you're not allowed to marry anybody until that special ceremony takes place. Mm. The one after uh, might be a year or two. And then you're free to go and do whatever, you know. You're a free person. So they uh, burn the belongings of that person uh, in a pit. And uh, before they do that, you go and stand in the pit and they bathe you. And uh, it's cautioned off area in the centre of a, like a circle. And then they burn the belongings of the deceased and cover it up eventually. And then they dance all around in that area and celebrate. And then they have a feast. That's the end of, uh, I mean, you know, like if it's your dad or your sister or your mum, you still carry that uh, loss, you know. Mm. 
Hmm. Yeah. We don't like to hurry. There is nothing more important than what we are attending to. There is nothing more urgent that we must hurry away for. We are river people. We cannot hurry the river. We have to move with its current and understand its ways. This year you were, of course, awarded the Senior Australian of the Year. What does that award mean to you and and the work that you've dedicated your life to? What does that mean to you? I've been nominated several times here in the Territory Mm. and um, nothing happened. And when I think about it, I wish it happened again this time around, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? But this time I said to them, no, I'm not coming, you know, because my name came up probably out of a hat, but anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) they said, come, you want it in Darwin, the government wants you. And I said, what for? I'm going, because you've been nominated for the award as Senior Australian. And I said, yeah, right. Uh, I'm not going to go. I said, I'm not coming. And then they kept humbugging me and said, come on, hurry up. And then jumped in the car and drove off and it's not gonna it's just a waste of you know time and money and <laughs> you know wear and tear of my car and all that sort of thing and then I went in and there was this big ceremony um, at the convention center and uh, bang my name came up <laughs> <laughs> and I had my family with me and they're all screaming and carrying on in the back there and I said oh my god and I said well about time, you know. <laughs> I've done, <laughs> but I didn't realise that was going to be hectic as it is. As in, people like yourself ringing and saying, "We want to talk to you. We want to record you on Bali and all that sort of thing." You know, yeah. It, it's just constant with people with uh, inquiries. What do you think it means to young Aboriginal kids to see you up there on that stage getting handed this award by the Prime Minister? What do you think the impact is on on that next generation to see you there? That was the best thing for them to see, that I uh, forced them to come and help me up them steps. (laughs) (laughs) Come here, (laughs) Scott, hold me because I've got uh, bodgy knees and I said, don't you stand there, come here and give me a hand. <laughs> but no, they were really excited to see the man that they call here the boss of Australia was there, you know, holding me and uh, helping me up the stairs. And with him handing me the trophy, that was uh, exciting. And I thought that was it, you know, mm. but no. When I come back here, sometimes people forget that, you know, you've got your own duties to do here in the community with your people. Yeah. And uh, they think you just sit under the trees waiting for the next phone call. (laughs) (laughs) We have learned to speak the white man's language. We have listened to what he had to say. This learning and listening should go both ways. We would like people in Australia 
to take time to listen to us. We are hoping people will come closer. We keep on longing for the things that we have always hoped for, respect and understanding. The trauma of what's happened in Australia to Aboriginal people is still really raw, as we know. This is a very big and very deep question and how you want to answer it is entirely up to you, but what do you think is the best way forward to reconcile some of the traumatising things that have happened on this land to move together? I've, I've inviting people throughout Australia to come and visit and sit on country with me to learn and listen to what the needs are and how people should help in making things better for us. But don't all rush up here, please. You know, we've done the hard, well, I've done the hard yard and others here in the community, the hard yard of learning about you and what is expected of me when I'm in the city and how to live. And then I've been taught by your way of educating people the Western way. And I, I believe I've got enough to get me through. So I'm just saying it's your turn. Not you, but I'm saying your people. <laughs> I mean, you can come. I get it. I get it. <laughs> you can. Okay, so, so let, me, let me ask you this. You know, we've been chatting for about half an hour. Where should I start? What's the first thing I should do? There's still a lot of things that have to be um, listened to in what the needs are in our communities. It's not just this community, in other communities in the Territory and wherever else. You know, whether it's uh, Aboriginal people or Torres Strait Islanders. And um, people out there, like officials, um, politicians, are not really listening. And um, if there's a, a project that has to be done in a community, you know, you get that thing happening and then everything's all working out really good and then the money runs out and they pull the carpet from under your feet mm. and then they leave you gasping for air, you know, and then, then they start up another program. It's almost similar to the one before and they call it another name, you know. So for people to come and listen to what the needs are in our community would be fantastic and to improve things and it makes it hard for us because I'm not complaining about where I'm living or I'm not throwing rocks at government or whatever. All I'm saying is people have got to listen to what the needs are and, and support us. I don't know whether if that answers your question. It does. It does. You know, you're also saying, like, with trauma and that, sure, mm. we've had trauma happen here. Yeah. When my dad died, mum and and after all the things that I talked to you about, like ceremony was when he lived with a farmer here and they had a little girl and her dad was white and it was in that era where they were taking kids away from families and then having them adopted out to people wherever. And I think my sister ended up in Adelaide with a family. That sort of thing, mum never talked about it. She just understood it as it was the law of the day. You know, she hardly ever spoke about it. But uh, when I was old enough, I started to understand what it was all uh, about. 
and uh, eventually my sister knew where she came from and then she asked the missionaries back here to get in touch with us and um, she made arrangements to come back and meet us and it was very moving for us to meet her for the first time, you know, ever since she left us and, uh, you know, and those sort of things. It wasn't just my sister, it was other kids that had been taken away too mm. and government... Whoever was responsible haven't been able to come back and listen and supported the families in what they've done. Saw it, not Scott Morrison, the other, Kevin Rudd, is it? Yeah. Was the Prime Minister at that time. And he had the guts to go and say something like that, you know, to say sorry to us. Yeah. Um, but I think people want more of uh, what it is, you know, like with them now they've all come back, a lot of them, and found their family, and some haven't. Um, they're still looking for family, even now. People come from Darwin to say, hey, help me find my family. And I do my best to try and find family for them, their family. And I have at times, but they still need more about this story for government to come and listen to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. That's okay. That's okay. I appreciate it no, a lot. That's okay. that's okay. And I believe that the spirit of Dadadi that we have to offer will blossom and grow, not just within ourselves, but in our whole nation. I do want to say another thank you to Dr. Miriam Rose Ungermere Bowman for taking the time to chat with me, or at least a small computer screen version of me. Uh, I hope you all got something from her words and her thoughts. Uh, we'll put more information about Dadiri and the Miriam Rose Foundation in the show notes. Also, thanks to Laura Uden for recording Miriam Rose, and special thanks to the Now You community for helping us with the setup. This podcast was produced on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung, Gadigal, Jajawurrung, and Malak Malak Country and we pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.